0: Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an Oxy or a Perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or
1: to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Here we go, the start of another week on Political Rewind, the beginning of a new month, March 1st hard to believe it has arrived. Uh, Very quickly, I want to thank all of you who sent me best wishes as I tried to recover my voice last week from laryngitis. I got some great home remedies from many of you, and I'm almost back to normal. But thank you so much uh, to all the listeners out there who uh, wish me a speedy recovery. We have a really, I think, important show uh, today. Um, You know, I don't think it comes as much of a surprise to most of you out there that we cannot seem to put the Civil War behind us here in the South. The legacy of slavery uh, and subsequent imposition of Jim Crow laws continues to have an impact on the search for an end to systemic racism. Debate continues over how or even whether we should be memorializing Confederate leaders, white supremacists rally around the Confederate battle flag and in many ways see the Confederacy as a symbol uh, for a rebellion against the United States that they believe is a just cause. Uh, and there are even still those who argue about why the South seceded in the first place. Our guest uh, today, uh, Brigadier General Ty Sigily, who is the uh, Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton college, former uh, head of the history department at West Point, um, and a a man who has a deep, deep knowledge and background in studying military history, is joining us today uh, to talk about his new book, which deals with all of what I just mentioned and much more, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost cause. Uh, Jim Galloway is with me today to uh, help this conversation along. Jim, I, I said to Ty Sigley before we went on the air that I thought it was just appropriate that you and I would be the ones to talk to him since you are a product of the South. You grew up in Georgia. You understand some of the same myths that he talks about in his book and that we'll discuss on this show, whereas me, I'm a Chicago boy. I came down here in the 80s, and it was only then I began to see the complicated history of the Civil War and how it continues in some ways, Jim, to haunt Southerners. So thank you for uh, uh, joining this conversation. But I do want to immediately bring in Ty Sigley. By the way, Ty, thank you for uh, allowing us to refer to you by your first name rather than your uh, uh, rank as a brigadier general. You served 32 years— in the United States Army but I, I want to start by mentioning one of the reasons you came to the attention of a great many people is I think it was in 2015 that you created a video that became went viral uh, basically saying was the Civil War fought for over slavery I think you had four five million people view that it was widely controversial in in some uh, circles, but um, it really began uh, your, uh, I think, journey to try to help uh, uh, people understand the real roots of the Civil War. Is that a, a fair uh, way to describe that?
0: Well, that, that video, uh, you know, I was an Army officer at West Point, and Army officers don't go viral, uh, or historians don't go viral, <laughs> and— when that came out, so I, I, I did it when we, we had another book that came out, The West Point History of the Civil War, and I was plugging that, and I did the short video that then, uh, I did it maybe January of 15, but it came out right after the Charleston Massacre. And so, and, and then it was, and this is where I realized that history is dangerous because I said the Civil War was about slavery. I said that uh, many people don't want to believe the citizens of the Southern states were willing to fight and die for a morally repugnant institution. And I got, I mean, the hate mail I got from that, I got death threats to an army officer, to my West Point address. The army investigated me was whether I was doing political speech. Of the nation, a left-leaning organization said I was a propagandist for the military. Stars and Stripes on the right side said I was too close to a politi- another political organization. So I found that, and, and my West Point bosses were nervous in the service about this. So I figured that after this, is that is what I got from that is history is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities. And when we do that, when we poke that, um, the Civil War, in a way, is a, is, a, is a dragon, and when we awaken it, it's going to breathe fire. And what I found then was that it singed me.
1: You know, Jim, it is astonishing, and in reading Ty's book, uh, I, I recognize this more than ever, that we are still grappling with a war that was more than a century and a half uh, earlier in our history
2: yeah and 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 it still has lessons for us I mean especially right now I mean i I consider I consider the lost cause to be probably the greatest disinformation campaign in American history and and, and it it has survived it has it it, it it has survived for better than 150 years and uh it's kind of merging with uh with uh, with with Don, the donald trump uh uh campaign right now.
1: Yeah, I, I think those are all really important points to make. Um, l- let's talk about, about this book. Um, Ty, you begin the book by pointing out to us that having grown up in Virginia, northern Virginia, and then in uh, Monroe, in Walton County, in Georgia, um, when you were young, you were indoctrinated in all of the myths about the South and the Confederacy. Your favorite book, you tell us, when you were a child, was Meet Robert E. Lee, which it, you, you, uh, you print an excerpt from that book, I won't bother reading the whole thing, but, but one of the things you loved about it was that it described him, he said he was a simple man, he had a simple faith in God, and he did always did what he thought was his duty. So you revered Robert E. Lee as a child.
0: Oh yeah, see, so yeah, I didn't just—I didn't just think he was a good guy. Re- reverential is right. So maybe you've seen the movie. This is Final Tap. You know the first mockumentary. I love that movie. And and the rock stars have a have an amp. You know exactly where I'm going with this. The, the rock stars have an amplifier that goes to 11. And they said, well, why do you have that guy? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Well, on a scale of one to 10, I would have rated Lee at at an 11. And even though I was a good Episcopalian, went to church every Sunday, an acolyte. I would have put Jesus in the four, five, six range. Everything about my life made Lee not just a, a good person, but the best person ever. And I wanted to be a Southern gentleman because that, had, that, that was status. And I was, I mean, I'm just honest, I wanted that status. And status came as a white man with a right religion, with the right uh, background. And it meant being a Southern gentleman like Robert E. Lee. That is what, that's who I wanted to be. And I never looked beyond that because my books, my movies, everything about my life led me to the one true religion in a way, which was this Southern gentleman uh, and this lost cause religion. Jim, jump in.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm just, uh, well, first of all, I mean, do you consider yourself a Southern, uh, a a Virginia gentleman at this point?
0: No, I don't uh, don't use that term anymore. No way. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well tell us a little bit about arlington we'll start let's let's start with arlington let's uh i mean that's what that's uh that's where you uh first entered elementary school uh it uh, it has some history that i was not aware of i did not know that arlington had seceded from the district of columbia in 1846 over slavery
0: yeah yeah. So, in fact, so the, the the idea of maybe you've seen the the movie Hamilton or the or the the play. I saw it, you know, on Disney mm-hmm. the other day, and and it says about the room where it happens, which is this idea where Madison and Jefferson uh, and uh, Hamilton get together and decide where the capital is going to be, and and basically the Southerners give up some debt stuff, and because of that, they get to put it in in the slave states. Well. Washington, George Washington, says, no, you can't put it up a little bit further north. It's got to have my hometown in it, Alexandria, Virginia. And so they – they, indeed, they changed the law to put it at, at down in Alexandria, and they make a 10 square mile uh, – 10 square miles. And they put these – in fact, it's still there to this day, all these pillars, these granite pillars in its diamond shape. Well, it's not that diamond shape anymore. In fact, the, the Potomac is the one – the Potomac River uh, is the jagged western edge of the District of Columbia. Why is that the case? Well, in 1846, they, they, they retrocede. white Virginians' vote to bring, the, to bring uh, Alexandria northern Virginia and that area back to Virginia. Now, listen, we know governments don't give up what they have taken. That is just not the way governments work. Why did they do that? Well, northern Virginians were fearful that the district would outlaw the – not enslavement, but outlaw the trade, the man trade, the trade in slavery. And exactly in in 1850, that's what they did. So they retroceded back to Virginia. And when that happened, the white citizens of Virginia celebrated with fireworks and parades. The black citizens of northern Virginia um, were were wailing because black churches had to to cease operation. Black um, uh, schools had to stop. Uh, in fact, all three black people had to leave the state because they were now under the slave regime again. So our, our, the history of my hometown, which I had no idea about, is actually – this, this is, is enmeshed in the slave trade. And then sure enough, after 1846, Alexander becomes the hub of the slave trade where more and more people in northern Virginia are selling humans, selling enslaved people to the deep south like Georgia with these cotton, rice, uh, and tobacco farms. So it was – It it was it's it's a and 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 I'll tell you one other story there. So I was bussed across town in in Northern Virginia. I was bussed from the black from the white elementary school, completely segregated, named Douglas MacArthur on on the street named after a Confederate to the segregated black school. And what was the name of that segregated black school? Robert E Lee Elementary School. You can't. I mean, it's so cool. The other black elementary school was Stonewall Jackson.
1: Um, Not much of a choice. All
0: of these. No. So all
1: of these were things that you learned much later in your life. So, again, as a as a boy, uh, first in Virginia uh, and then in Walton County, Georgia, uh, here are some of the myths that you grew up uh, believing in. Um, gone with the Wind helped you uh, with your vision of the nobility of the South, the image of slaves as people who were treated with kindness and respect uh, by their masters. We all know Mammy from that uh, movie and her relationship with Scarlett O'Hara. Uncle Remus, the stories of Uncle Remus were a part of who you were. What did all of that tell you before your dawn awareness about the South?
0: Well... Yeah, it, it, it really set my identity. And again, we talk about this, that our history is our identity. Our myths are who we think of themselves. And all of these created Gone with the Wind, which I read at the age of 12 and just devoured and then read it again. It was You know that first book that you read as a kid when you realize that reading can be as, as engrossing as a TV show? Well, that was what Gone with the Wind was for me. And they, what they taught me was this lost cause myth, of the, of the lost cause myth. And what that is, just to explain that is, First, the war wasn't fought over slavery. And that's what Margaret Mitchell says in Gone with the Wind. She says it was this grand defense of our way of life. Well, that's just not true. It was fought for slavery. Look, look at, at, at Henry Benning uh, and other secessionists. They said we're fighting this war to prevent the abolition of our slavery. The next one was that enslaved people were happy and hardworking. Well, that's just monstrous. Slavery meant rape, it meant torture, it meant murder. And for the, for the enslaved people, the worst was is that you're going to break our families apart uh, for profit, and, and and a great percentage of, of, uh, of families were broken apart in this way. Um, the North won the war because it had more manpower, material, and money. Well, remember, the North had to mobilize like no nation ever mobilized before, come south and defeat multiple armies in an area twice the size of modern France and Germany. Another myth was that Grant was a drunk and a butcher, no best commander of the entire war. Um, Confederate soldiers were the best ever. In fact, 12 Confederate it would take 12 Yankees to feed, defeat a Confederate. Well, no, not true. The, by the end of the war, the South had huge problems with, um, uh, with, with uh, uh, desertion. Um, and the, oh, another part of that myth, and, and Gone with the Wind is probably does this more than anything, it's more of a book about Reconstruction. That is that era right after the Civil War when the North came in and tried to make a more equal society, when we had the 13th Amendment about the end of slavery. Uh, The 14th Amendment for equal rights, the 15th Amendment, which made all male citizens of the ability to vote. Well, what the South said, the white South said, was that this was an abject failure because black people weren't ready for the vote. And in fact, 2,000 black men served in high office. And then at the top of the pyramid of the Lost Cause myth is Robert E. Lee, the greatest man who ever lived, uh, the greatest soldier. And yet he's got a big L on his forehead. This guy lost. And we Americans like winners.
1: Um, let me. Um, I, I want to mention a, an image that you describe in your book as an example of how you were indoctrinated into this uh, false belief about the relationship between slaves and masters during the war. And then, Jim, I want you to talk about a book you just discovered in your own basement. But, Ty, you describe an illustration which shows apparently a plantation owner greeting an African man, uh, who apparently has just arrived on the shores, and you describe the fact that the white man has an arm, on uh, a hand on the man's shoulder, shaking his hand with his right hand, the family standing behind him as if this is uh, the relationship that masters and slaves had. I want to tell you something really, uh, for me, interesting. I've been watching a Netflix series called Amend, which is hosted by Will Smith and is the story of the 14th Amendment and the civil rights movement moving forward. It was directed by our good friend here in Atlanta, Kenny Leon, and they show that illustration in the film. So they, too, saw how striking it was, that misdepiction of the relationship.
0: Yeah, that was my uh, fourth or seventh grade textbook in Virginia, which they created – Um, to show that massive resistance to say it was a reaction to integration, a reaction to Truman forcing the South uh, to create all humans as equal. And so they created these textbooks because they wanted to make sure white and black uh, uh, Virginians, boys and girls, had the correct education. So if you imagine this scene on a ship. Where there's a a black family, an African family, and they're dressed in colonial finery, and the the wife has got her hands in her head like, oh, finally somebody is going to take care of our family. And there are two boys and two girls all dressed well, and this you know white colonial guy is is obviously in charge. Well, it looks like they just came off a princess cruise ship. That's what it looked like. But instead, they're coming off the infamous Middle Passage of Africans coming from the from Africa into bondage for their lives for their children's life forever it's the most monstrous image uh, that I could imagine and yet what what white Virginians and this is written in the 1960s was trying to show was that um, was that uh, that that slavery was the best way of doing it and that's what the that's what the Virginia legislature told the authors make slavery look good and I'm just I mean, look. You can tell me. I'm just so mad. I'm teed off about this. That the, what I got was this misinformation campaign. And the more you study enslavement, just the more horrific it becomes. I mean, the the, the level of particularly rape. Um, you know, most white boys had their first sexual experience with an enslaved woman during this period. Um, there's a there's a reason why. I'm I'm, I'm uh, you know I'm an age now. I don't have grandkids yet. I'm really hoping for that soon. Uh, but, but white men would would watch their own children and grandchildren and sell them all into slavery. And yet this picture and this textbook made it seem as though this was the best situation for everybody. It's monstrous. Jim, you found a book that
1: apparently was used in schools in Georgia uh, back in, I don't know exactly what, maybe the 40s, the 50s. Uh, talk about that.
2: Yeah, well, and, and this was happening as I was reading Ty's book. Uh, we were we're cleaning out the basement, of course, and we got down to the uh, 1980s and uh, and 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 beyond. And I come across a book called "Readings in Georgia Literature," published in uh, 1937. I'd never seen it before, but my 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 mother was a library a librarian's assistant in uh, South Fulton County. Uh, back in the 70s, and, and she may have picked it out of a discard pile. Uh, it, it was written, it was uh, compiled a year after uh, uh, Gone with the Wind came out. It has an excerpt of it. Uh, but it also has five odes to Robert E. Lee in it, in, yeah. in essay form and in poems. One of the poems, Ty, you would recognize. It is an ode to a recumbent General Lee, the, marbles, oh, the marble, the marble, the marble altar that you that you that, that we need to get you, to get you to elaborate on. But it also has it has it has an essay on Lee and Grant from John B. Gordon, the U.S. senator and and Georgia governor, who is also kind of the the author of the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia, and it has two essays from Alexander Stevens, one before huh. the Civil War, where he says where he says. Oh, we we ought not to go through succession secession and then one after the civil war that says let's forget about what this civil war was all about that let's just agree to, to, to move along missing from it of course is his cornerstone speech uh, uh-huh. made made in savannah in march of 19, 1861 where he basically he, he disavows the declaration of of independence says not all men are not created equal that our country is going to be based on white supremacy and, uh, Stevens, it's, of it's, course, it's an open, yeah, it's it's an eye opener, yeah, it, it really is. too. and 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 the book circulated, there uh, there are stamps on the book. It circulated in, in nineteen sixty.
0: Yeah, it,
1: this is Stevens, this is of what, course, what, being the vice president of the Confederacy. Go ahead, Ty.
0: It's a it's vice president of the Confederacy and a Georgian. So you know, you look at this and this lost cause myth, it, and it was done for, on purpose. So the, the thing that we got to study, we got to remember about this lost cause. And about what Stevens, Stevens, the Cornerstone speech, which says that, that we're doing this for white supremacy, that the Negro, quote-unquote Negro, is inferior, always will be, always shall be. Uh, and then, then the way they changed the view of the Civil War, it's got a purpose. And so that's what we can never forget. But the purpose of the war was to create a, and ensure a slave republic, and not just in Georgia and in the South, but they, had, they wanted to go to Cuba, to Latin America. Um, uh, to, to even South America. They had these designs to spread their evil system across the world. So you have this, this, this they went to war for slavery, um, they lost, they sowed the wind, they reaped the whirlwind. And then after that, they had to come up with it, one, the, utter defeat. I mean, they just, they, they, 60% of, of Southern wealth is gone. And white Southerners who wanted to ensure white supremacy forever through slavery, now had to deal with a newly freed uh, black people. But, but remember that this, that this lost cause myth, along with seg- – after the war, with segregation laws, with white terror lynching, with black disenfranchisement, Jim Crow and, um, and Confederate monuments all formed the pillars of a society based for of white supremacy to ensure white political power. Now, what you did there is you said – I mean you got some of those great George great, quote-unquote great Georgians. Alexander Stevens, we'll talk about John Brown Gordon later, I think but what they all were fighting for this idea of white supremacy. And so that's why the ideas before the civil war aren't that much different than what comes after the civil war. It's about creating racial control to ensure white political power then. And then after the war too. Um,
1: In 1977, your family moved to Monroe, Georgia, to Walton County. And much like your experience in Northern Virginia as a child, You had no idea. First of all, you didn't realize that half the county, I think, was black, uh, made up of black citizens um, and didn't know anything about their experiences there. Uh, And it was only much later in your life. You went to a white high school where football reigns supreme. uh, And it was only many years later that you began to understand that there was a very dark, very dark history of, uh, of mistreatment, of black people in Walton County.
0: Yeah, so we moved. We moved there in eighteen. I mean, nineteen seventy-seven, and you know, it was it was a completely different world in Northern Virginia. I mean, even the names of the towns, Social Circle, Good Hope, between. This was a different type of area, and and I, yeah, I, my first year in in, uh, in Monroe, um, I had I did not meet a black person, and the only way I end up meeting black people was it because I worked at an egg processing plant in Social Circle. And that was almost all black people that worked there. But other than that, I, I didn't. So what, what I found out when I was going there is that I went to a SEG academy. And, you know, in, 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 uh, in, in Georgia, finally in 1969, the, the federal courts ruled that all the attempts that, uh, that Georgians, white Georgians did to keep segregated school systems, which, was, which were enormous starting in the early 50s up through 69, that they failed. And my school— uh, my Seg Academy started in, in 1969, along with hundreds of others in the state of Georgia. They popped up like mushrooms to ensure that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids. And that's the high school that I went to. And I had 19 people in my graduating class. Um, but I, I didn't know about the terrible racial violence in Monroe. And it, it starts in the Reconstruction era. And they, you know, I went and found all the records of the, the, there were three KKK dens in Walton County. And it accounted for at least 10, probably more like 20% of all white men were a part of this. And they went through executing many of these people. One of the leaders of this, a guy named Jim Felker, there's still a street in downtown Monroe named after Felker. And and so that those have happened. And then there's the ones in the late 19th century, there's ones in the early 20th century. I mean, lynching after lynching. And then and then finally, which I didn't know for years, this was the site of the infamous Moore's Ford. Lynching—the last mass lynching in American history—in 1946, when when a posse of, of Walton County's white citizens stalked, trapped, and then and then slaughtered four uh, African Americans, two women, two men, one of whom the man was a was a was a veteran—and uh, then there has still never been justice for the Moore's Ford lynching. So that the idea that all this was happening, and I didn't know about it until decades after I left. Not only did it rage me, it made me look at myself and say, Lord, have mercy. I was living in this 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 cauldron of racial violence and I knew nothing about its history. And that's that that, that was just the most difficult chapter for me to write because I had to write about these lynchings, which were so horrific. Um, and, you know, Georgia, I think, had almost five hundred and ninety lynchings during this period. It was one of the most dangerous places to be a black American in this era. And uh, and this is why we, we have got to study this uh, in, in some depth, because it is such an awful, awful part of our history. Jim, I
1: want to explore Morris Ford Bridge in, in a, just a little bit more in a moment. But just to make the point that history about, about uh, the SEG academies that Ty went to, Fort Walton Academy, uh, is not as uh, long ago as we would like to think it is. It was in 1984, Jim, that Joe Frank Harris, then governor, proposed the Quality Basic Education Act in Georgia, which he did not talk about openly, really, was really designed to re-establish uh, the formula for funding schools across the state because of the disparities caused by the old seg school system in the state of Georgia. It is, it's virtually contemporary history.
2: Right. Well, what you would have is you would have a, 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 a in local governments you have know, white dominated local governments you would have a school board that would refuse to raise all sorts of taxes, uh, because their kids and their neighbors' kids were all going to the to the, the private academy, if you will, uh, and so you so you so so the public schools were in those areas were, were just starved starved of money, uh, in in terms of teachers, in terms of buildings, in terms of textbooks, they weren't getting what they needed.
1: All right. I want to talk a little bit more about Moore's Ford Bridge, and then I want to talk um, uh, with with you, Ty and Jim, about another role that you are now playing Uh, in uh, last month. Actually, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin appointed you as one of four representatives of the U.S. Department of Defense to the Commission on the Naming of Items of the Department of Defense that commemorate the Confederate States of America or any person who served voluntarily with the Confederate States of America. It's a long title, but it has extraordinary implications today as we here in Georgia look at what the heck to do with All of the ways in which Confederate leaders have been honored in this state. We'll do that a lot more when we come back on Political Rewind.
0: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: It's Monday on Political Rewind, which means my partner on today's show is Jim Galloway, now retired from the AJC, but not from this show. Um, We're talking today to uh, Ty Sigley, uh, who retired after 32 years in the United States Army as a brigadier general who grew up in northern Virginia, then Walton County, Georgia, uh, believing in the myth of the lost cause, but the story of his awakening he tells in in a riveting uh, extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily candid book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Uh, uh, Ty, we're so grateful to ha- have you here. I-, I do want to talk for a couple more minutes about Moore's Ford Bridge because it is one of the most heinous examples of a lynching in the state of Georgia. And Jim, you were at a protest that uh, around the uh, fact that uh, there are many people in this state, led by Tyrone Brooks, who felt that uh, that case needed more uh, investigation by law enforcement officials. Who uh, Tyrone Brooks and his folks felt were were ignoring it. Right, right. And
2: then there was there there, there was an incident in 1981, uh, and and Ty writes about this in his book, uh, where I think a a, a young uh, black soldier from Fort Bragg, I think he was, uh, a decomposed body was found uh, hanging. Uh, it was officially declared a suicide. Uh, the local community had many, many doubts about that, uh, and and in fact, Ty comes up with some a, a few new details. It, it turns out I was uh, there. Were there were there was a huge protest, a huge march of of African Americans from social circle to to uh, Monroe on that, and it just turns out I, that was uh, I was the anti I was the Klan reporter for the Atlanta Journal. At the time, uh, because because you didn't want to give uh, the Klan a lot of ink, but you still had to have somebody on the ground uh, watching these people. So I was considered fairly expendable. But it's it is where I met uh, 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 Tyrone Brooks because he put that together. He's the the long, long serving state state uh, uh, state house member who uh, who who is who made uh, uh Moores, Moores Ford
1: Bridge uh, a cause. Talk about that lynching uh, or that, uh, that, that um, death that people attributed to being a suicide that
0: you researched, Ty. Yes. Well, you know, I, I mean, I knew about the Morris Ford when I started writing the book. And I was looking for, just looking as I was doing my research. I had no idea, again, my own obtuseness, that there was a lynching. And this lynching uh, by a, uh, of a young black soldier from Fort Bragg. Uh, and, you know, that they are, there were rumors that he had been with white women. Um, there, which is again, what, which is one of the things that you know, the Morse Ford Bridge or other lynchings. Anytime there's this idea of black men with white women, it becomes it becomes something that is the, the like the most uh, dangerous thing for white people. Um, and so there were all these different rumors that came in, but they found him hanging uh, twenty feet in the air, um, a hundred, a couple hundred yards away from his home. And you know when they finally said that they ruled it a suicide, you know the whole audience just gasped, just unbelieved. I could not believe that this is this would another lynching, another cover up. Now again, I don't know what happened, and I don't think there'd ever been the, the you know the full investigation that we would be doing today on that. But the result, a result of this was KKK vote uh, marching, um, black. Of people and, and white allies marching. And I mean, when I read about the Klan, they burned Tyrone, uh, his, 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 they burned him in effigy. Um, I mean, it was just this awful racial violence. And again, of stuff that I should have known about, but never did. And, and it just, again, makes me realize that, you know, this idea of racial violence and political violence is as American as apple pie.
1: I, I want to go back and, uh, and talk about this transformation uh, that you went through in which you began to understand that what, the stories you'd been told were lies. And, and there's, a, I think, one of the most revelatory sections of your book is in, in which we learn from you that words really do have a meaning. So, for instance, um, you say to us, There's not a union. There wasn't a union army that fought the Civil War.
0: Um, Help us explain what the truth about that is. Well, well I grew up believing that it was and, and this comes often from the Civil War centennial 1961 to 1965 is that they were two brothers fighting it was Union versus the uh, the Confederates it was Johnny Reb and Billy Yank it was Lincoln I mean it was it was uh, Lee against Grant and you see them as equal these are not equal people it was it was the a rebel force an insurrectionist force unwilling to accept the democratic election fighting against the United States army the army that I uh, that I wore that blue uniform for over three decades, the same that Grant wore in, during that war, the same uniform that George Washington picked for the Continental Army in, in the Revolutionary War. It's the same army. We make it seem as though, as Karl Marx would say, it was in the dustbin of history. It's the U.S. Army. So I never say the Union Army. I say the U.S. Army. Other language I say is that the South was a racial police state during uh, the period after the after Reconstruction up until through the 1960s, and even you know, some ways a little bit later. Um, I don't call them plantations. Uh, I call them enslaved labor farms, because that's really what they are. So the idea that we're going to change our language helps us understand what these are. Plantation makes us seem like moonlight, magnolia, scarlet waiting, for, you know, waiting for, this, uh, uh, for, for iced tea from enslaved servants. And Old South, Old South doesn't mean something romantic. It means a slave society of rape, torture, murder. And so the language we use is important. I, I think um, one of the
1: most provocative words you use is in how you now define what Robert E. Lee was, not a general who fought nobly for the Southern cause, but
0: you now say he was what? He was a traitor for slavery. And I say that because he, he, he was in the Army for uh, about the same time as I was, over 30 years. And then he chose treason. Treason is the only crime in the Constitution, and it says levying war against the United States. Did he levy war? Absolutely. He wasn't. He was indicted for that, never prosecuted. Um, The second reason is I grew up saying everybody had the right to do that. Well, no, uh, everybody did do that. No, there were eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in, uh, in 1861. Seven remained loyal to the United States. Lee and only Lee did it. And why? Because of his firm belief in enslavement, which he says over and over again. In fact, for two and a half years, right before the Civil War, he gets leave from his unit uh, in Texas to go run enslaved labor farms at Arlington. So he's cruel. He whips people. He sells them apart for profit. This is a cruel enslaver. And then after the war, he never goes against that. He believes that black people are inferior, always will be inferior, and in fact, argues that they should be kicked out of the state of Virginia. A, a tie,
2: I, I don't I don't want to spoil the entire book for people because they, they really need to read it they need to buy it and read it uh, but you have I found one of the more striking passages in there was uh, uh, after after you uh, left Walton County and I think your family moved to to Mobile uh, then you went to Washington and Lee the university and uh, years ago you were taking your wife and and your kids through the chapel there I, I I just thought that was a, 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 tell us about that. I thought that was a really striking passage.
0: Well, my wife is the hero of this book. Um, she can't she <laughs> can't tell lies. she just sees the truth at, which has abated me low these many years. So we, we go in there. We're with our kids, and we we're down to the basement, and there's a little gift shop with a little Lee finger puppets, and, his, and there's all this 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 stuff around there that are that make it look like they're uh, um yeah I mean there's worshipful thing. But then we go up into the chapel itself, and she looks at it, and I, we know what churches look like. In the abs of the chapel is uh, is a white altar, and on top of the altar is Robert E Lee, and when she so li- literally we worship Robert E Lee there. When she sees that, she says. Oh my God! Um, uh, oh my God! You, you get me out of here. This place is like—I mean, it's, it's she, she, she. This is—it's it's the worst because it's—it's uh, it's making Lee seem like God. You worship, you worship Lee and not God.
1: You point and, out and, in the are no
0: Christian symbols. It's all Robert E. Lee. No Christian symbols whatsoever. No Christian symbols at all. I mean, it's it's absolutely, it's incredible that there are no Christian symbols, no pulpit, nothing. And yet it's Lee Chapel. And the only thing that is that, that, that is looked at in that chapel, the only thing that is worshipped is Robert Edward Lee. And in fact, Traveler is down in the basement, his, his war horse. And his war horse actually has his own sacred place. And people come there still and put pennies on it. They put pennies. Why? Because... Because they put Penny's face down so that Lincoln's head, the hated Lincoln, can't see Robert E. Lee's tomb, and also so that Lincoln will have to kiss traveler the horse's butt. So this is a way that we still see Robert E. Lee as this figure of of, uh, of reverence, and he thought he was a traitor to the United States of America, and why did he, was he a traitor? For slavery. So thanks for letting me say that, traitor for slavery.
2: Uh, yep. yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: If you can, I mean, it,
2: it, after after you, you you've uh, it, Bill, I don't know how fast you want to move to this, but I would love to talk about uh, the 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 how how Confederate symbolism made its way into West Point and into Arlington Cemetery because the pattern is really very evocative. I mean. Uh, the, the Confederate battle emblem really didn't become the symbol that it that, that it is now until uh, uh, efforts at, at integration occurred in in the in late forties and early fifties, and there seems to be an equal uh, a similar reaction in, in, uh, that you document in, in both uh, West Point and Arlington.
0: Yeah, so I, what, why what
1: don't I we talk it. about so, yeah. Ar- Ar- Arlington especially? Um, because we I want to make sure we have time also to talk about your role in terms of looking at Confederate uh, symbols at U.S. Uh, army bases. But talk a little bit about Arlington because that's a particularly interesting story.
0: Yeah, well, Arlington, you know, is 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 four hundred thousand uh, Army uh, heroes are buried there. And after the in eighteen sixty four, Montgomery Meigs, the quartermaster of the army. Puts, uh, it was owned by Robert E. Lee and his family, his wife's family. It goes back to George Washington's time. Uh, and they had to evacuate that, the Lee family did, because it was occupied by the U.S. Army. Starting in 1864, they started making it a national cemetery. They're buried there. And they're, one of the first integrated cemeteries in the country is right there at uh, at Arlington. Um and, and it was it was only U.S. soldiers until the early part of the 20th century where they start putting Confederates. But the worst part is the monument there. And that monument is a racist trope. It has a black, quote unquote, mammy, an overweight black woman on this monument in sacred territory for the United States of America. And she's taking a, a baby from her white enslaver to support him going on. It's meant to show that slavery was good. That enslaved people were happy; it was the best thing for them. It was meant to show that the South was right and we and, and the and the U.S. was wrong. It's the most monstrous um, uh, monument in the country. And by the way, in 1923, we came within a couple of votes of putting a 40-foot mammy on Capitol Hill. So the, Arlington is is the most is the worst monument that we have, the most cruel monument in the country.
1: All right, I've got to get to our final break of the show. We're going to come back with uh, more on political rewind. Uh, we have a little time left for our conversation with Ty Sigely, author of Robert E. Lee and Me. Jim Galloway joins me for the conversation. Uh, Ty, you were appointed by uh, Defense Secretary Austin to look at, uh, among other things, I assume, the names uh, assigned to uh, U.S. Army uh, forts, Here in Georgia, we have Fort Benning, we have Fort Gordon, and uh, the question is, and one that's been debated in this country for some time now, whether or not we ought to remove the names of Confederates from U.S. Army bases. Of course, uh, the former president of the United States didn't want to hear about it. Where do we stand on that? And tell us a little bit about, just a little about who the people uh, uh,
0: who Fort Benning and Fort Gordon honor were. Right. Well, the interesting thing about the two named in Georgia is that uh, neither one of them ever served in U.S. Army Blue. They were never served in the Army. Uh, John Brown Gordon was a, fought really well in the Civil War. But after the Civil War, he founded the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia and then gave a speech to black Charlestonians uh, where he, in 1868 where he said, if you are to demand equality, black people, we will start a race war and the 40 million of us white people will exterminate the 3 million of you black people. And then he went on to be a governor and senator in Georgia where he fought for white supremacy and said, vote for me, vote for the Democratic Party uh, so that we can ensure white supremacy now and forever. Um, I and mean, so just terrible. Henry Benning was uh, the leading fire eater. Those are the people that that's Fort Benning outside Columbus, Georgia, that said that we should we should um, uh, break apart the country starting in 1849 because of we're worried about abolition. So he was the and his biggest speech was given. His biggest thing he's ever he ever did was to try to break apart the United States to support slavery. And his idea of black people was apocalyptic. And he said that he would rather have famine and pestilence than black equality. And he only was a brigade commander, not a very high-ranking uh, Confederate general, but he was the favorite of the local United Daughters of the Confederate because he was from Columbus. So he was a terrible person. So what we want to do is make sure that, the, that, that who we – remember that history is about – we'll still talk about John Brown Gordon, what he did at Antietam. But what we're different is, is who we commemorate. Who we commemorate should be who we honor. And so I certainly want to make sure that who we honor represents the values, diversity, and courage of the American soldier.
2: Uh, uh, Ty, why does this seem to be a, a, a problem? Kind of uh, uh, relegated to the U.S. Army. Uh, I mean, I mean, is is it simply a historical matter? Because we we don't hear discussions like this coming out of the Air Force or the Marines or the Navy.
0: Well, you got to remember that. First of all, the, the the Air Force wasn't around in the Civil War. Sure, um, that, that that helps. Um, the second part was the naval <laughs> the naval academy. Um, uh, there, there weren't that many great heroes on the, on the Confederate side because they had almost no Navy uh, to, to speak of. Uh, and so there are, and, and there were no graduates. The first graduate of, of Annapolis is only 1854. They don't reach high rank. And the Marines are a tiny force during the, during the Civil War too. The, the, the Army is always the largest force, and particularly in that war. So partly it's just because the Army is what matters in the Civil War. The other forces. I love it. Don't get me wrong, but they're just not important in the Civil War. Um, and the one that is important is the U.S. Navy not the Confederate Navy. So that's, that's the main reason. Um, and that the Army is, is much more attuned to local populace because we put all these forts in these local populace. And remember, the South, when these were named, these ports were named in World War I and World War II um, when the South was a racial police state. Black people did protest it, but they had no vote. They had no ability to change it. So that's why we have so many things named for is because during World War I and World War II, we were a segregated uh, army. We were a white supremacist army during that time, too.
1: Do you believe that um, eventually, sooner if not, uh, or later if not sooner, we, your, your commission uh, will be part of the effort to rename, say, Fort Benning and Fort Gordon? Is that part of your role to make recommendations about that?
0: I think it certainly is. I mean, we're going to look at everything that's named after Confederates. That's what the law says. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm not saying what Ty says. I'm saying what the law says. And the law says we've got to look at everything in the Department of Defense. And so um, I'm excited to join. I mean, I've got some really distinguished people. I'm so honored to be a part of this process. You know, I've been writing about this for the last 15 years. To be a part of this process to me is amazing. And, and, you know, Lloyd Austin, a great Georgian, by the way, who went to West Point, um, I know is firmly behind this process. So uh, I'm excited about the opportunity to serve my nation again. And you know what's so great for me is I get to take the oath. So the oath of office is one that I will take. I'll raise my right hand and give the oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. What's interesting is that oath was written in 1862. It's an anti-Confederate oath. The oath that everyone in the military takes, that everyone in Congress takes, is an anti-Confederate oath written in 1862 to ferret out traitors to the United States
1: um, um we we've uh, just got ta- go ahead jim uh,
2: just uh just very very quickly what's what's the what is the morale impact if you're i mean you, we have i mean uh, the military has become a, a a a place where many many uh, uh black americans americans uh go to get their get their start in life what, what's what's the morale impact of 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 being stationed at say a a a, a fort benning or a fort gordon
0: yeah, I think. I mean, I think. I think it's terrible. I mean, we. I had black cadets that I taught that lived in Lee Barracks at West Point, and it. And it really, it really made them upset. And Fort Lee, which is the, the most diverse workplace in the country, 50% African-American there, it, it does make a difference because who we commemorate should represent our values. And those our values in the military are about diversity, courage, and, and, and doing the right thing. And these people did the wrong thing. So it does have a huge impact. And we need to make sure that we're bringing – remember, the Army brings 10,000 people a month into the Army, 10,000 a month. So we can quickly change this narrative um, uh, if we change who we commemorate, who we honor. So I think it does make a difference, and I I'm, I'm, I'm just can't wait to get after this work.
1: Ty, um, many of the white supremacists, and, and many of whom we, we saw assault the United States Capitol on January 6th, were not necessarily Southerners, um, but they, they, they were believers in a white supremacist cause— that I wonder how much you would associate with the history that you've uh, mined in your book. In other words, to what extent does the lost cause, um, the fact that the South did rebel uh, uh, treacherously against the United States, what, to what extent do you think that informs the white supremacist movement of today? Or, or do you see it as an entirely uh, different uh, proposition?
0: Well, if I didn't see, it's a great question, if I didn't see the flag of treason, that battle flag of the Confederacy going into yeah. the Capitol, and in fact it went right by Charles Sumner, and Charles Sumner was an abolitionist who was nearly caned to death by Preston Brooks the South Carolinian in 1857 uh, for excoriating enslavers. And that Charles Sumner is the guy that wrote the oath I just told you about. So when I saw that, that flag go through there, I know that there's a link because that flag has always meant white supremacy. It meant it in 1861 to 1865. It meant it in, 18, in 1956 when Georgia added that Confederate battle flag to its flag. When I lived in Georgia, that Confederate battle flag was part of the state flag. It means that now, even though Georgia's flag continues to be an homage to the Confederate flag. So as long as we have these symbols, which represent white supremacy and people are carrying them, that's exactly what it means. So yes, there's a direct link to white supremacy.
1: Uh, Jim, just looking at Georgia history, uh, we all know, we both know because we covered it extensively, what happened when Roy Barnes tried to change the battle flag, the uh, Georgia flag to remove an emblem of the Confederacy from it. And the controversy it caused, I'm curious, Jim, Do you think we've grown as a state since then? And then a corollary question to you, Ty. uh, After Jim, uh, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Are more and more people understanding what you do now? But Jim, very quickly because we're short on time. Talk. What about Georgians? Uh, Have we learned uh, from our past? I'm I'm not sure
2: that grown is the right word. We have changed and and part of that is the fact that we do have a i mean we have a new generation people old people are dying out people who were educated with that 1937 textbook are going away and uh, and you have uh, and and you have many many african americans moving back south so I, I think that's a good part
0: of it uh, and i tie, think we're, wrap us up yep yeah, yeah, i think we are changing but but remember history is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities and it's incumbent upon us to understand that. So if we want to ensure, um, uh, the only way to ensure that we don't have a racist future is to first understand our racist past. We must acknowledge and embrace who we are and who we were if we want to have a more just society.
1: Ty Sigely, this, from my point of view, has been one of the best hours we could possibly have had on this show. Your book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, Really meant a lot to me as a Northerner who moved south uh, 30-plus years ago and have been trying to understand the south ever since. Jim Galloway, thank you for being part of this conversation. As a son of the south yourself, uh, terrific show. Thank you so much. Um, we're out of time for today. Of course, we're back again tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. We're going to turn to talking about the state legislature where, interestingly enough, some of the themes we talked about today are in play right now as Republicans try to impose election laws that are likely to disenfranchise uh, some segments of this state. Uh, we'll do that on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. And yeah this is the, the CDC now says wear two masks not just one bye everybody